John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51. This is God's word. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw him following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there was no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is God's word. Let's pray before we start. <clears throat> God, we thank you for your word, and as we go through the Gospel of John, we do pray you would help us to see the beauty and the glory of Christ. You would help us to, um, you know, also through your Holy Spirit, uh, cultivate our faith that we might believe in you and trust in you uh, more and more, and that we might, um, you know, read these stories and see uh, the things that the Gospel of John says and feel conviction of heart, uh, not... Um, necessarily in terms of, I guess, what we ought to do, but who we ought to see and whom we need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <coughs> All right. Uh, next six months, here's the plan. We're going to go through the Gospel of John. Uh, it's a long Gospel, so we're not going to be able to look at every single chapter, but uh, I think we're going to be able to go through most of it. And the Gospel of John, I think, is a very... Uh, brilliant gospel in in, a, in some ways because there's a simplicity to it, but there's also a complexity to it. There's a story where it's like pretty easy to read and anyone can kind of pick up this gospel and read it and kind of understand what's going on in the story. So even if you're young, even if you're uh, <coughs> one of the youth group boys, I think you can read through the gospel of John and still have a sense of like, oh, this is like who Jesus is and this is what it's about. But I also think that this gospel can also be very deep, and there's a lot of actually nuances in here and themes that come up over and over again. So if you're doing like a, a more in-depth Bible study, uh, it's like pretty fun, and it's like pretty interesting to see all the themes that can kind of come up. Uh, we went through the Gospel of John, the prologue to the Gospel of John, actually in Bible study, and one of the things, if you were there, I said is, uh, think of John's gospel like Beethoven's Fifth Symp Symphony. So on the one hand, uh, anyone can you know, hear that song, Beethoven's Fifth, that goes da-da-da-da, right, da-da-da-da. Anyone can kind of hear that uh, that symphony and kind of enjoy it and say, wow, this is like a, a great and beautiful song. On the other hand, I'm sure someone who studies Beethoven 
we'll see all the nuances of what Beethoven is doing through the music. And there's like a depth to it. And uh, what I said in Bible study is like, you know, that da-da-da-da, that theme kind of repeats itself throughout Beethoven's fifth. And you kind of see variations of that, like, I don't know, that tempo, that melody, that note structure. You're going to see that in the Gospel of John. So from what we saw in the prologue, all of those themes kind of will pop up over and over and over again. One of the goals of the Gospel of John, it's stated at the end of the Gospel, in John 20, John tells us that the stories that were written about Jesus, he wrote these things so that you might believe that Jesus is a Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, this gospel is meant for the readers to not only just read about Jesus, but it's calling us to believe in him, to trust in him, to trust that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, so that as we have faith, as we believe in him, we might experience life in his name. And therefore, this gospel is ultimately evangelistic. Now, the way it calls us to believe, I think, is also what makes this gospel a very compelling book. Uh, When some people think about the evangelistic nature of Christianity, I think some people get a little bit turned off by that, right? Uh, Maybe they get turned off because they've encountered Christians who, you know, use certain kind of like tactics of guilt or fear or something like manipulative and try try to coerce people into belief or maybe they get turned on turned off because they've encountered christians maybe who act a little bit like a salesman or like uh, someone who likes to argue and debate and that's a way to get somebody to believe Uh, what i find compelling about this gospel is that it presents jesus as someone who it it almost seems like he's not even really trying to get people to believe in him, right? There's like a a little bit of a passivity. There's kind of like, come on, check me out, right? (laughs) There's not like, all right, I'm going to persuade you and I'm going to get you to believe, but it's just kind of like more of an invitation to come and see, come and believe. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first disciples that Jesus called. And there are three things that Jesus says here that I want to focus on uh, as he speaks to various people. The first thing I want to reflect on is Jesus' question when he asked, what are you seeking? What do you want? Second, I want to reflect on Jesus' invitation where he says, come and you will see. And finally, I want to reflect on Jesus' call where he says, follow me. So what are you seeking? Come and you will see and follow me. And these three things that Jesus says in calling his first disciples, it does tell us a lot about what makes Jesus so compelling and ultimately why we should be a people who follow him. After John the Baptist, uh, after he fulfills his, his call, and I'm summarizing a little bit the, the previous passage, where he bears witness to the coming of Jesus, uh, what he ends up doing, he's, I guess he's just like chilling. He's just standing around with two of his own disciples. And in a very almost like nonchalant manner, John the gospel writer tells us that you know Jesus walks by And John the Baptist, as Jesus is walking by, says, and this is the second time he says it, Behold, the Lamb of God. And after this, the two disciples that are with John, they hear this and they start to follow Jesus. So Jesus sees them following him and asks them, What are you seeking? Now, depending on the context, this question can be taken in a variety of ways. So, for example, if you're in New York and someone just kind of starts following you, And a person says, like, what do you see? What do you want? Right? The context tells you. It's a little bit confrontational. Like, why why are you following me? That's like a strange thing. Why are you following me at all? In this context, Jesus' question actually has a a deeper meaning. 
Because what he is really asking is not like, what do you want? Like, why are you following me? But what he's really asking is, what do you really want in your life? What are you really seeking in life? And the purpose of that question is to cause one to reflect. I think people who are very good at persuasion, whether it can be like a counselor or it can even be somebody who works in sales, I think what makes them very effective in what they do is they're able to ask good questions, questions that cause people to reflect. And if you just tell someone what they should think and what they should do, what ends up happening? They kind of ignore it. It doesn't mean as much to them. Uh, and if you're in a position of authority or in a position of power, yeah, maybe the person might do what you say, but there's no conviction of heart, right? There's no belief there. It won't resonate with them to the point where they feel like this is what I should do. Jesus asks, what are you seeking? What do you want in life? And that is not a bad question for us to reflect on, especially as we begin a new year. Some of us might say, well, what I want in life, I want to be more successful, or I want a better relationship with people, with my friends, with my family, or uh, I want to make more money, or I want a, a better job or a better career, or I want to grow as a person, or I want to get in good shape. Okay, uh, we want these things, but why do you want these things? What are you really seeking? What is the desire underneath those desires? And maybe it's peace, maybe it's happiness, maybe it's security, maybe it's a sense of I want to feel worthy. And when you get to the desire beneath the desire, that's where you can really have a conversation about whether we will find the things that we truly want uh, in these things or whether what we really desire should be found elsewhere. John's disciples respond to Jesus and they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? And they don't really give him an answer to that question, do they? Right? Jesus says, what are you seeking? And these two disciples say, Rabbi, where are you staying? Uh, it's kind of a strange response. They don't say, well, Jesus, we are seeking some joy or we are seeking some purpose or anything like that. And I like that they don't give an answer here because I think a lot of people are probably not prepared to answer a question that deep. I suspect a lot of us are probably living busy lives and uh, our lives, instead of reflecting on our heart's deepest desires, we're just kind of going through the motions of what we have to do for that day, right? Uh, if I went around and if I asked, like a, picked a random person, I said, what are you seeking? I th maybe you know the answer, right? Maybe in those like, um, you know, self-help business books, you know your why, right? <laughs> uh, maybe you know like what you're really seeking, but I, I imagine that a lot of us would kind of be like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it is that I, I really want out of life. And the disciples here, they don't really have an answer. All they, want, all they can say is like, Jesus, where are you staying? And then Jesus responds and he says, come and you will see. This leads to the second phrase that we want to reflect on. Come and see. Come and you will see. Uh, that phrase and its variations come up a couple times in the Gospel of John, and it's not necessarily something that Jesus always says, but it's something that people would always say and people who've encountered Jesus would say. So, for example, even in this passage, Jesus gives an invitation to come and see, and he says that to these first two disciples, uh, but then later on, it would be Philip who would say that to Nathaniel. Now, what does the invitation to come and see Jesus tell us about the nature of both evangelism and discipleship? I think it tells us this. 
at its core, at its most fundamental uh, level, Christianity is not so much about uh, a system of thought or a system of beliefs. And when I say that, I don't mean to say that it's absent of a system of beliefs, but I'm saying that is not the core of what it is or the foundation of what makes someone a follower of Jesus. In other words, even though Christianity does have this system of beliefs, you can't really philosophize someone into encountering Jesus. And even though Christianity consists of teaching, you can't really teach someone to encounter Jesus. You can't force that encounter to happen. The only thing you can really do at the end of the day is invite someone to come and to see and to seek Jesus. And when we hear this word disciple and when we hear this word discipleship, I think oftentimes I wonder if our emphasis on what that means can be a little bit imbalanced, at least according to the Gospel of John. Here's what I mean by that. When I was growing up and someone used the word discipleship, the thought that first came to my mind was actually like a classroom. And for me, discipleship was ultimately about learning and gaining more knowledge. And on the one hand, I am thankful for that because it did make me into a more studious person. Uh, All throughout my life, until I became a believer, I actually was not very studious at all. And I was not very academic-minded. I did not like to read. And something strange happened to me once I became a believer, is I just had this hunger and thirst uh, for knowledge, especially knowledge of God. And so I became much more studious. And so when I used to think about discipleship, I was like, well, you just got to read more books and you got to learn more. But that is not so much the vision of discipleship that we see in the Gospel of John. And uh, I thought one commentator put it so well. He said, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, is a little bit like going into a room to hear a seminar about Jesus, but the Gospel of John is more like going up to a mountain and being shown the glory of Jesus. And isn't that the first introduction we have to Jesus, especially in this encounter with John the Baptist. The first thing that John the Baptist says when he sees Jesus is not, oh, teach me, and what a great teacher. That's more Matthew, right? What he says is, behold, the Lamb of God. And then he sees Jesus again the next day, and what does he say? The very same thing. Behold, the Lamb of God. And I think this is the Gospel of John Uh, its way of introducing us to Jesus in terms of first encounters. It starts with uh, a declaration of awe and wonder at the sight of Jesus. Take, for instance, Nathaniel and Nathaniel's encounter with Jesus. Uh, In our passage, Nathaniel is a little bit skeptical here. Uh, Actually, the way he's described in the text, he is someone in whom there is no deceit. And the translation, I think... um, a little bit misleading, but basically Nathaniel is the type of person, he's very transparent. He's, he's the type of person who doesn't sugarcoat things. He'll say what's on his mind. And so when Philip tells Nathaniel about Jesus, Nathaniel's reaction is basically this. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? In other words, it doesn't really make sense based on my assumptions, based on what I know about the law, that the Messiah would come out of Nazareth because Nazareth is a very small and insignificant town. It would be like saying, instead of Jesus coming from a glorious city like New York City, he came from the Plains, Virginia. Have you ever heard of the Plains, Virginia? Probably not, because I had to Google it. What are some of the smallest towns in the U.S.? It's got a population of about 200 people. Are you saying the most important person in our, in our Jewish faith came out of this like little tiny town of Nazareth? What good comes out of Nazareth? And that's basically Nathaniel's reaction. You know what convinces Nathaniel here? 
it's not like this watertight argument of like, yeah, why not? Why can't uh, the Messiah come out of Nazareth? But ultimately what convinces him is an invitation to come and to see a person. When he encounters Jesus, Jesus says to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel's reaction to that, he says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now, what just happened there? It's a little strange. You can tell by the context, Jesus is not saying, hey, yeah, I was walking by the fig tree the other day and uh, I happened to see you under it, right? Uh, if you told me, hey, Sam, you know, I was in Bryant Park the other day and I, I happened to see you, my reaction would be, oh, you were there too? Nathaniel doesn't say that. He doesn't go, oh, Jesus, you were there at the fig tree too? Uh, he, his reaction tells us that there is something more going on here. So what happened? I don't really know. <laughs> I don't think anybody really knows. But what we do know here is that uh, what Nathaniel was doing had to be a very private and intimate uh, thing that he was doing, so much so that nobody else would know that he was under this fig tree. It wasn't this place like Bryant Park where you could potentially run into someone because uh, there were so many people there, but it was probably something he was doing that was, again, very private. Uh, some commentators have some theories like, for example, uh, the fig tree was a place where uh, maybe oftentimes confession of sin would take place. And so when Jesus says to Nathaniel, under the fig tree, I saw you under the fig tree, uh, maybe he's saying to him, I was there to hear your confession of sin, right? Who knows? But what I do know is at the end of the day, the only thing that brought Nathaniel to move from this like, what, what good comes out of Nazareth to this like skeptical p- uh, position to now becoming saying, you are the Messiah, you are the, the Son of God, you are the King of Israel, to becoming this follower of Jesus was not uh, a watertight argument, but at the end of the day, it was a simple invitation to come and see Jesus. And Jesus did the rest. That's why I think hospitality is actually so important, but I also think hospitality is a little bit misunderstood and underrated. Uh, when we think of the word hospitality, I think what comes to mind is uh, entertaining. But the problem with entertaining is then the focus uh, becomes on our inauthentic selves. Entertaining is about kind of like showing people, hey, look look at my uh, home or look at the, uh, uh, look at the nice uh, food that I have or uh, whatever it is, right? And unfortunately, I think a lot of us think about evangelism in such a way and therefore our invitations are more about coming to see the church. Uh, look at our community. Look at the people in our church. Uh, look at the programs we have to offer. Look at our, our children's programs. Look at how uh, beautiful and wonderful our music is. And I think in American evangeliz- evangelism, that's how uh, we think of uh, evangelism. And it's, it's a little bit more like entertaining. But it takes away from who we should really be focusing on, which is Jesus. Our invitation is not to come and see us and what we do. Our invitation is to say, come and see Jesus. Who knows? Maybe you will encounter Jesus. Who knows? Maybe Jesus will come into your life and change your life. Come and see the one who gives me hope. Come and see the one who gives me hope when the world tries to take it away. Come and see the one who has lifted me up and sustained me when I was in my most weakest and most vulnerable state. Come and see the one who gave me my sense of worth when 
Uh, I failed multiple times in life, and I felt like my life was totally worthless. You see the difference? Our, our invitation is not for people to come and to see us, but is ultimately for people to come and to see Jesus. The how or the when Jesus comes to encounter a person is ultimately beyond the scope of uh, our control or our ability. All we can do is give the invitation. And if Jesus is a person, of course it makes sense that it would be that way. Think about the most compelling person that you know. Uh, maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe it has to be like an imaginary person or a celebrity or something if you don't uh, personally know a person that you find super compelling. But you might tell someone, you know, you got you got to meet so-and-so because uh, this person, they're, they're so funny. Or you got to meet so-and-so because this person is so wise or they're so talented in this area. And you know that even though you might try to describe this person with words, at the end of the day, it's not going to be good enough. Ultimately, someone has to meet that person to fully understand what you know about that person. Jesus, of course, is much more compelling than any uh, person we might know uh, would be. How much more, then, do people have to ultimately encounter Jesus on a personal level in order to fully understand why we ought to be a people who seek him and believe in him? And so finally, what Jesus offers is a call. And he says, follow me. This is the call of the first disciples. Follow me. Uh, You remember how I said John's gospel is like both simple and complex and there's like layers of meaning there. So remember when John's two disciples, they see Jesus and then the text says they follow him. And that's ultimately what prompted Jesus' question of saying, what are you seeking? Well, here, there's actually a deeper meaning here too. On the one hand, it is saying they physically followed him, right? They moved behind him. But <clears throat> there's a spiritual meaning here too because in John's gospel, when it talks about following Jesus, it, it means spiritually taking the first steps to becoming a disciple of Jesus. It means following him spiritually. It means taking a step towards belief and trust in him. Jesus would also tell Philip, follow me. It's a call that requires that we make some kind of change. If you see Jesus passing by and you just kind of stay in the same spot, you aren't really following him. To follow someone means you you are actually taking steps to seek someone who you find is worthy of following. Now, why would you want to follow Jesus? Well, when Jesus asks that question, what are you seeking? And the disciples respond, where are you staying? Here too, simple meaning, but also a deeper meaning. On the one hand, they, they want to know where Jesus is physically staying, but John's gospel uses a Greek word that comes up over and over and over again, and the Greek word is meno. Meno is a word that is also translated as abide. You read John's gospel and John's letters, he talks a lot about abiding in Jesus. If you do a simple word search for the word abide, you're going to find many more instances of that word abide in John's writings uh, than anywhere else in the Bible. Here's, I think, what John wants to emphasize The most important thing that we can do is to abide in Jesus. It is to be with Jesus. This is going to come up in John 15 when Jesus talks about the vine and the branches. And he tells us that if we abide in him, then we will bear fruit. He's telling us that the only way for us to actually be connected to Jesus is organically rather than mechanically. To be mechanically connected to Jesus means that 
Uh, basically, we just kind of go through the motions of what we think a Christian is supposed to be, and eventually that's going to fall short, uh, and the branches are going to wither away. But to be organically connected ultimately means we have to be in relationship with him. It means that we have to draw our source of life from him. It means that we are connected to Jesus uh, in a spiritual way. And whatever it is that we are seeking, that desire underneath all of our desires, that will only be satisfied fully when we abide in Jesus. Hence, Jesus' initial question, what are you seeking? What do you want? And here's where I'd like to challenge our congregation. Let's be followers of Jesus. Let's be disciples of Jesus. What does that mean? Uh, I don't necessarily mean, like, let's learn more uh, and read more uh, Christian books, although that's not a bad thing. I would say, let's follow Jesus and try to be where he is. I think that does mean, let's make sure we stay connected to him through the uh, ordinary means of grace, through prayer, through worship, through word, through sacrament. And I, I think maybe when we think of these things, um, and I'm being a little bit self-reflective here, I think the immediate response can be, uh, oh man, but that takes up so much time and so much energy, and I feel like I just don't have enough time, and I don't have any capacity or energy uh, to do these things, to which I would say, perhaps then we need to change our paradigms about how we view Jesus. If you're a parent, uh, <coughs> Jesus isn't like raising our children, right? <laughs> Where we, uh, they do take up a lot of our time and they do suck a lot of our energy. Uh, Jesus is supposed to be the opposite where he is supposed to fill us, where he is supposed to renew us when we feel the most empty. He is supposed to be the one that helps us endure when we are going through our most stressful seasons in life, when we have all these anxieties and what-ifs popping up in our life. He is supposed to be the one that loves us and shows us mercy and compassion when we feel like failures in life. I don't think the problem is lack of time or energy. And again, I say this somewhat self-reflectively. I think the problem is maybe we don't see Jesus as someone that uh, we need to go to when we really need him. Uh, We probably reflexively come to Netflix or come to food or come to drink maybe even come to friends, which are, again, not bad things, but not fundamentally the thing that we need most in our life. I don't think this passage is necessarily calling us to do more as disciples, but it is calling us to go where Jesus is, to follow him, to seek him, to behold his glory, as John the Baptist declares. Behold the Lamb of God, to come to him in our time of need, to come to him when we feel tired, when we feel defeated, when we need to be refreshed, to come to him when we long for love and forgiveness and mercy and compassion. And we're going to see the characters in John's gospel who are very, in mu- uh, uh, who are very much in need <laughs> of those things, to come to him when we feel hungry, who is the bread of life, when we feel thirsty, And as we see throughout the gospel and climactically in the cross that Jesus wants us to come to him to the degree that he would actually die on the cross so we might come to him freely without condemnation, without guilt, without shame. 
that we might know him, that we might be known by him, that we might hear his call and answer that call and follow him so that we might be filled. Filled of our, um, our longing, filled of that desire beneath the desire, uh, filled with the bread of life, filled with eternal water, the one who thirsts so that we might no longer thirst. And as we begin this new year, let's be disciples. Uh, which is very simple. means let's follow him and try to be where he is. Let's pray. Uh, God, God, we... <coughs> You know, in a sense, we are all in the same boat in that sometimes we just do keep on uh, just doing and living because uh, we have so many responsibilities in our day-to-day and so many things to take care of and so many things to do. And sometimes uh, we need moments where we can, uh, I guess, really reflect on, you know, what is it that we are seeking and why are we doing all of these things? And perhaps this is a moment where we can do that as well. Whether it is that we want, uh, you know, whether it's we want better jobs or better careers, or we want to just provide the best opportunities for our children, or uh, whether we want uh, a, a relationship, uh, whatever it is that we're seeking, help us to look deeper to the desire beneath the desire, and in that reflection, help us to know that Jesus is the one who can fill that ultimately. God, there is a a part of us that uh, is helpless and uh, we can only find Jesus compelling insofar as uh, we get a glimpse of him. We get a glimpse of uh, the glory of Christ. We get a glimpse of what John the Baptist declares, Behold, the Lamb of God. And so we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would give us uh, a greater glimpse of Jesus. You would help us to see his beauty his wonder that you would help us to see uh, his glory and you would compel us to to come and see to follow to seek his face may this be a a year where we experience um, being filled by Christ and being satisfied of our deepest longings by Him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.